1: Welcome to Pax Britannica, the Scottish Revolution interview series, maintaining the Covenanter regime in Civil War Scotland with Dr. Alan MacDonald. Today I'm delighted to speak with Alan Macdonald, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Dundee. Dr Macdonald is a specialist on the social and political history of early modern Scotland with a focus on Parliament and agriculture. He's also part of a Leverhulme-funded project to digitise the records of the Scottish Privy Council in its final decades before the Union. Dr Alan Macdonald, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. So you're a specialist on early modern Scotland's government. Can we see any difference in the way that the Covenanters administrated the kingdom versus what came before?
0: Yeah, some quite profound differences. I think the the first and foremost difference is the augmented role of parliament because before 1639, what you've got is a situation where parliament is a very occasional body it meets for a couple of weeks every few years and government is largely conducted day-to-day governments largely conducted by the Privy Council whereas during the 1640s parliament takes a much much more prominent role in government be- effectively because the king's been sidelined and, and there's been a takeover by the political nation in a sense a lot of the decision-making processes that would have gone on in sort of behind closed doors become absorbed into Parliament and even between sessions of Parliament, the parliamentary organ continues to operate by a mechanism called the Committee of Estates. So it's elected at the end of each parliamentary session to govern the country between sessions of Parliament and, and it's sort of a selected group from within Parliament. So, so that completely changes the, the axis of power in a sense in Scotland during that period.
1: How did the rest of the kingdom react to this? Was their authority or legitimacy questioned? Did the people who supported the National Covenant tend to support the changes that had come about in central government?
0: Yes, um, (laughs) although that wasn't everyone. I think that's the key challenge for Mm. the covenanting regimes. They faced a a kingdom that, while majority support, at least in terms of of the political community, was in favour of the covenanting revolution, there were significant pockets of opposition to it. So I think what you'd find is that during the 1640s, most of Scotland aligned itself with the covenanting regime. Most of Scotland cooperated with the covenanting regime's changes in government. And those bits that didn't ran a risk by doing so, they tended a military action targeted against them by the regime. It's inevitable, I suppose, in a revolutionary situation like that, that you're not going to get compliance everywhere. But on the other hand, it would be unreasonable to suggest that the covenanting regime failed to control the country. In that sense, they instituted a a, a thoroughness of government that was unprecedented, and they, they did it pretty successfully.
1: What kind of methods did they use to actually implement this?
0: One, as I said a moment ago, was was the military, which is the extreme <laughs> version. If you if you didn't comply, I mean, you know, famously, um, Aberdeen was was threatened and besieged and and overrun by the Covenanters early in the period, ironically led by the the Marquis of Montrose who was later to be the key opposition leader to the covenants in the in the middle, or to the covenanting regime at least, in the middle of the 1640s. But he led the covenanting army against Aberdeen, which was the one royal borough in Scotland that um, implacably stood out against the covenant and refused to sign it, and and therefore faced military force to oust the borough council that had refused to sign the covenant and replace them with a more compliant group. Not that doing that kind of thing wasn't something that had happened under the 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 royal regime previously, although it didn't tend to require military force in the past. So that's that that's at on one level. At another level, they, they they effectively created mechanisms whereby there was much more integrated communication and coordination between the centre and the localities. I mean the probably the the most prominent example of that is the the shire committees. So every county had a committee that was made up of lairds and nobles and representatives from the boroughs in that shire and these committees would meet regularly to oversee the uh, administration of the country on behalf of the central government in Edinburgh.
1: See that's really interesting because I was going to ask whether the, the, the bishops are removed from the parliament and they're Votes are essentially given to to the lairds and the gentry, and I was gonna. I was curious about what effect that would have on the government. Were they already a part of the administration, but didn't necessarily have the have as much decision making power? The
0: story of the lairds is an interesting one, um, in the sense that um, there's a lot of misconception about their role. One of the one of the things that has been said, you know, I was taught this as an undergraduate that. Um, The Lairds were made into a separate estate um, when the bishops were taken away to ensure there would still be three estates. But that's actually not true at all, because the Lairds had been in Parliament since the later 16th century as, as a separate estate in their own right. And often the Parliament was described as the four estates of Parliament during the period from 1587, when the system of, of shire commissioners was instituted and 1639 when the bishops were removed. In a sense, though, it might be better to say that they came to new prominence in this period for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, under James VI, there'd been a gradual increase in the level of responsibilities handed down to local landowners that the institution of commissioners for the peace, like like English JPs, was begun under James VI, and and the layers were brought in to more prominence then. I mean, just the fact that they they, they began to participate in Parliament regularly brought them to more prominence. And I think that that sort of was consummated during the covenanting regime, A, because of that sort of political apprenticeship that, that that social group had served in the previous 20 or 30 years, but B, also because of the fact that they were very very prominent in the covenanting revolution itself Uh, the sort of backbone of support for the covenanting revolution came from the lairds a lot of the the manpower in terms of bringing out um, soldiers to fight for the covenanting regime during the bishops wars came through the lairds and as a result of that i think uh, it it was sort of a natural progression that they would they would obtain a, a more prominent role in government and administration under the new regime
1: so if the lads became more prominent in government how did their higher status colleagues in government react to this were they were the were the nobility you know really thrilled that all of a sudden they had to rub elbows with their social inferiors um again i think it's
0: It's a tricky one to answer because, first of all, historians are divided on on this particular question. One view is put forward by um, John Young of the University of Strathclyde, and he he spoke of um, the emergence of a Scottish commons, the idea of the the Lairds and the Burgesses sort of becoming something like the commons in England. And so that's one view that the the Lairds saw themselves as different and separate from the peers. Um, But on the other hand, a historian like Keith Brown, who is much more a historian of the nobility, spots and, and points to greater affinities, continuing affinities between the nobility and the Lairds. They were kin, they were clients, you know, they had close relationships through those bonds. And it's hard to see I suppose I would say I I tend to favour the brown view rather than the young view. I mean my work on the boroughs in particular demonstrates the degree to which the boroughs often found themselves isolated in many questions, particularly with regard to financial issues and the levying of taxation. They found themselves isolated in opposition to the Lairds and the peers. So in parliament the lairds and the peers voting together would outvote the boroughs. An example of this, it comes quite early on, that the the boroughs objected to the extension of the number of votes that the lairds had in Parliament in in the early years of the covenanting Parliament. After the abolition of the bishops, the voting strength of the lairds was virtually doubled because prior to 1639, each county had one vote. Each county would elect two Lairds, two shire commissioners to represent it in Parliament, they would share a vote. Whereas after the, the revolutionary Parliament of 1639 to 41, each commissioner got a vote. Um, and the, the boroughs objected to that, but the peers supported it. So that would suggest a bit more that the peers were quite comfortable with people who were quite like them having their representation augmented in Parliament. And I think a really important point here is is to see this through a more European perspective, a more European prism, because the Lairds were nobility. They were, their only landlord was the king. That's what makes you a laird. They're not the gentry like they are in England. In England, the only nobility are the peerage, but that's not a common pattern across Europe. So the Scottish experience is more like the European one, whereby the lairds and the peers are seen and see themselves um, as a single social group, albeit with considerable status differences within that group. And I think that that meant that there were natural affinities between the Lairds and the Peers, which meant that they, I don't think there's much evidence that they tended to clash with each other anything like as much as that there's evidence that they clashed with the other group in Parliament.
1: That's really interesting. Now I wonder if you could, because you mentioned that the nobility and the Lairds were, they often saw themselves in the same light. How did they distinguish? What were the distinguishing features between them? What made someone a Laird, but not a noble? If that makes sense.
0: I think it's better to say what made them a laird and not a peer, because they all were nobles. It's it's as simple as as the, the, the difference in, in the way in which they were styled. The peerage were dukes, marquises, earls, viscounts and lords, and they had hereditary titles. Um, so the Marquess of Argyll um, was the chief of the clan Campbell, and he came from a succession of earls of Argyll and if everything had gone well, his son would have become Mark of Argyle in his turn. But um, things went a bit um, dodgy later on, and, and that didn't quite happen, but that would have been the normal way of things. If you were a laird, just to pick a random example of, of a laird that I'm fairly familiar with is the laird of Dundas, who was Sir Walter Dundas of that ilk, succeeded by Sir George Dundas of that ilk, who was the Laird of Dundas during the Covenanting era and represented um, Lithgowshire in Parliament? They were simply known as Dundas. They didn't have a peerage title, but there was something crucial about the fact that they were known by their estate title because that's what made them a laird. Uh, and the crucial word in their title was of. If you were somebody of somewhere, you are nobility, just in exactly the same way in, in the Holy Roman Empire, if you were Fawn, you were nobility or in 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 the Netherlands it's fan you know that particular designation of t- says that you're a noble, and if you don't have that title or that that designation in your title, then you're not a noble, so the lairds are are, are distinguished from the nobility from the peerage, pardon me, simply in the way that they're styled they did tend to be more lowly in terms of economic status than the peers although there was always going to be some overlap at the bottom of the peerage and the top of the the lairdly group in the sense that the biggest wealthiest lairds were likely to be wealthier than the most lowly peers just because you know nothing's ever as neat and tidy as you might want <laughs> it to be that is one distinguishing um, pattern between the peerage and the lairds is that peers could have lairds in their entourage, lairds would be unlikely to have other lairds in their entourage, um, you know, so, so that gradation, you would be expected as a laird to follow, an in inverted commas, a peer.
1: Speaking a little bit more about the spheres of influence that peers could have over lairds, do we see much of this having an effect during parliamentary debates do we see almost mini factions cropping up where a group of peers will be aligned with each other and then their their lairds will vote in accordance with their their, their peers
0: yes uh, in fact there's um if I, rec- if, I, if I recall correctly there is there's quite an important moment in the 1640s where just that happens and that relates to the engagement um, which is an agreement that was made between um some of the more moderate covenanters and Charles I in the mid-1640s. The idea was that they would come to a compromise with the king and support him in his war against the English parliament as long as he agreed to certain watered-down principles of the covenanting revolution. Um, and there was a big um, division in Scotland between the hardliners who didn't want any compromise on the covenant and the more moderate um group who did, who came known as the Engagers, and there is, uh, some, somebody commented at the time that simply, some certain lairds would just literally walk in behind the Marquess of Hamilton, and certain lairds would follow the Marquess of Argyle, and in that sense there was a significant degree of um, patronage And influence that was exercised by these great peers over the lesser nobility. Um, And that would often manifest itself in in parliamentary votes. And one of the key and most interesting things about parliamentary votes in that regard was that um, voting in parliament was by rank. So the first estate to vote would be the peers, the first person to vote would be the most senior peer, in this case, the Marquess of Hamilton then the Marquis of argyle then the most senior earl then followed by all the other earls then the most senior viscount etc etc and so it would go down and as a result of that it meant that the more social status you had the more of an example you could give by your vote and so because voting was in the open Mm. you know basically you, you sat in your seat and you were asked what your verdict was on, on the motion and you said whether you agreed or disagreed with it.
1: The layers would know very clearly what their their superiors expected them to choose.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And there would be all sorts of reasons why they felt it would be politic to follow that lead. Um, needless to say, I mean, that, that wouldn't happen all the time. There would be some situations might arise in which those bonds would be broken, but the the default position was... Like the like the whip in modern politics, the default position is you follow it.
1: And so moving away from the actual proceedings of, of, of Parliament and, and, and government, open like one of the one of the dominant themes of, of James VI's reign is a, a general trend towards state building, perhaps, or centralization. Do we see that continue during the Covenant of regime? And do we see like a stronger control being held over the highlands and islands? Or In the revolutionary upheaval, does that fade away?
0: I think continuing is a difficult way of describing it because it was done on a very, very different footing. Um, I think what the Covenanters were able to do was a much less incremental approach to changing government because revolution, to an extent at least, wipes the slate clean and and, and gives you a, a, a blank slate upon which to to start to build something new. And I and I don't think it would be right to say that what they did was a continuation of a process that had begun by mm. James VI. And in that regard, actually, with regard particularly to the Highlands and Islands, I think that was somewhere where arguably maybe they, they dropped the ball. Um, I, I think that most of their efforts were devoted to... Governing and extracting revenue from the bits of Scotland that were relatively already relatively stably governed and, and rel- relatively under the control of the centre, and intensifying government there. and And I think that, as far as the the north and west of Scotland was concerned, particularly the western seaboard north of Argyll, that that was a bit beyond their capabilities at the time. I mean, they were fighting wars, they were fighting internal conflicts um, as well. And, and I think particularly that part of the country, given the role of Alastair McCullough in the uprising of Montrose in, in the mid 1640s, that part of the country wasn't really properly integrated into the state and, and it, it remained challenging for them to do so. The same could be said of the restoration regime in the in the later seventeenth century and, and arguably the whole Jacobite issue is is yet another continuation of, of the, the Scottish and then the British states struggle to integrate that part of Scotland into into the state.
1: I'm glad you bring up the the policy of taxation, because as we were talking a little bit before we, we began the interview, the Covenant has implemented a new method of taxation to try and fund their military struggle with the King. I'm curious if you could tell us a bit more about that. What did they change? How effective was it?
0: They changed quite a lot. They, the taxation system that Scotland used before the 1640s was very old. It was based on a valuation system of land that dated from about 1300 called old extent and and also new extent but new wasn't that much newer than old. I mean one was about 30 or 40 years after the other one so they were both way back in the medieval period and they were still using those basic land valuations as a way of raising taxation Uh, and what happened under the Covenanters was a shift towards um, basing their assessment of taxation on sort of real current values. And the tax actually became known as, as, as the CES eventually, which is just simply a, an abbreviation for assessment. And this was an attempt to, as I said, to, to base taxation on, on real values and, and to have quite a wholesale reevaluation of, of wealth in Scotland to, I suppose, to make taxation more more fair um, the only problem was they ramped up taxation massively on on what had been levied under uh, Charles I and James VI. I mean, one of the ironies of of revolutions is that, um, and in this revolution, just like any other. Um, one of the grievances that um, is often cited as underlying a revolution is heavy taxation. But of course, a revolutionary regime gets into power and realises it needs lots of revenue to keep itself in power and ends up having to resort to very heavy taxation. I mean, they also resorted to other other um, short, shorter term measures, what would be best described as forced loans, which were euphemistically known as voluntary contributions. Um, how voluntary they were is, is um is is, um, debatable Um, but again those those would be sort of based on on this relatively new system of of valuation and they would be allocated your voluntary contribution this month (laughs) is this much um, and that's exactly how it worked and and so they would they did have a, a much more elaborate revenue raising system in place though because they had this this monthly contribution largely to pay for the the military expenditure that was swallowing up huge amounts of of revenue during the 1640s. And so that that was relatively effective. I mean, like any taxation system, it didn't bring in everything it was supposed to, but it certainly significantly increased the revenue available to central government. But alongside that, they also introduced um, excise, which is something new. I mean, previously there'd been local sales taxes, which had been dedicated to doing particular things, like a, a town would... And get a particular um, time-limited levy on, on, a, on some products, say wine for example, for the purposes of maybe repairing a bridge or repairing its harbour or building a new toll booth, that kind of thing. And that had been periodic, but what happens under the Covenanters is the excise duty is levied on a whole range of, of products, and many of them fairly everyday products, and um, this was a permanent national excise duty that was to be levied and as another way of of, um, raising revenue and indeed that um, as with the CES um, it endured effectively. um, One of the few legacies of the Covenanting movement were, were its revenue raising policies so the effectiveness of them must have been recognized even by their opponents.
1: We, we mentioned a little bit about the royal boroughs before. How did they react to these financial reforms, these these inspirational ways to get more money out of them?
0: <laughs> they found themselves in a very difficult position because the royal boroughs were, generally speaking, fairly enthusiastic for the covenant and um, quite keen to support it, um, quite willing, at least in terms of the the leadership of, of the boroughs, the the magistrates and councils of the boroughs, they were quite keen on supporting the government's efforts to to extract this revenue. Uh, They had problems locally in doing so, and and often they would find themselves, particularly as the 1640s wore on, pleading with the central government to have um, an alleviation of the amount that they were supposed to um, contribute. And what ended up happening often were um, Payments in lieu, for example, um, the quartering of soldiers in lieu of of, of contributions. Um, So the the idea was that um, every month um, you would uh, contribute to what was called the monthly maintenance. That was was the name it was given and that was for maintaining the army. Uh, And if you couldn't contribute to maintaining the army directly, you had to, well, actually, no, if you couldn't contribute to maintaining the army indirectly, you had to contribute to maintaining the army directly when the army would come and live in your houses. Um, And so that that operated in some places. But there was, it wasn't all one-way traffic in the sense that um, there was undoubtedly sympathy from central government, Um, again, as much as anything else, because central government was made up of these people you know, because it was part because it was a parliamentary government that that Scotland had in the 1640s, the people who were complaining were sort of complaining to themselves or to people like them. And so um, one example I can think of that was particularly clear and and extreme was the fact that in the middle of the 1640s, Dundee was sacked by um, Montrose um, and it seems quite clear that it was a genuinely devastating moment for Dundee's economy in the middle of the decade. And Dundee's commissioner to the next session of parliament basically says, we have huge losses. I mean, we're talking of hundreds of thousands of pounds in in their money, which is millions and millions in hours. Um, We simply cannot afford to pay the contribution that we are um, due to pay. Can we please have some you know, we have a payment holiday, you know, like like if you can't pay your mortgage or something like that. And and Parliament basically had to say yes, because it, it seems quite clear that this wasn't that kind of special pleading that you often get. People come on and think, oh, we have no trade, all our shipping is destroyed. You know, <clears throat> you often get this kind of thing. And and, um, and that's quite often dealt with by the central authorities with a very cynical Response, But in the case of Dundee in in the mid to late 1640s, it was quite clear that everyone realised how badly Dundee had suffered. And because it was loyal to the regime, it was allowed off um, a good few years of payments of of monthly maintenance. And that contrasts with Aberdeen, because Aberdeen's losses in the early 1640s came from disloyalty to the regime and they didn't get anything like the breaks that Dundee got.
1: It's good that you mentioned Montrose's rampage through Dundee. How did his his miracle year? How did that affect the the government in Edinburgh's actual methods of governing? How did they clean up after him? How did they make sure that the the towns in his paths stayed loyal to the Covenanting regime?
0: Purges. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, purges were just a thing that you did. I mean, it, it was the sort of thing that 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 was normal in politics. Um, I mean, it's rare have to say that, but um, under Mary Queen of Scots, under James the sixth, um, and it would happen again under James VII in the seventh in the 1680s, if um, the town councils did not behave in the way that you wanted to, and it was sort of an extreme version of not behaving in the way you wanted to, the crown would simply walk in and say, right, magistrates and council, you're all sacked, we're replacing you with these guys who we can trust. Um and this happened um in, in the middle of the 1640s. So I mean Glasgow, for example, had, while not enthusiastically supporting Montrose, hadn't um actively opposed him. And um so Glasgow Borough Council was purged in the aftermath of Montrose's rising. I think Montrose had come to visit and they'd gone out and said hello, basically, and they hadn't attempted to stop him. So that that was far too far too disloyal to the regime. So so they got, got it in the neck for that. And and wherever that or similar th- things like that had happened, um, the central government's response was the same.
1: When you say got it in the neck, are we talking figuratively or were these purges sometimes violent?
0: In those cases, uh, just figuratively. Having said that, the regime was very, very sensitive to, to, to loyalty at issues surrounding loyalty and obedience. And there were many, largely members of the aristocracy, who fell foul of that and, as a result, were were executed. One of the most interesting things about the covenanting regime, as a little side to that, is the way they effectively effectively reimagined treason. Because up until 1639, treason had been predominantly regarded, uh, as it continued to be, weirdly in England, as the crime against the monarchy. But the Scottish law and the tradition of treason was a bit more fuzzy than the English one. Um, It wasn't as clearly defined in statute, and so basically when the Covenanters got into power, they effectively just declared treason to be a crime against the state, which was quite radical for its time, but very much in keeping with their general view of where sovereignty lay. And so the the first person to be convicted of treason under the Covenanting regime, as far as I'm aware, uh, was commander of Edinburgh Castle under Charles I, and during the First Bishop's War, he had admitted English troops into Edinburgh Castle, and um, they got him on that because he was admitting foreign troops. And of course, the King wrote a letter um, in his defence, Lord Erskine it was, um, saying, these are not foreign troops, these are my subjects too. So they were were sort of um, debating that point, but fundamentally, Because treason's a political crime, it didn't really matter. And Lord Erskine was executed for treason against the estates and the kingdom, rather than against the king, obviously, because he was doing what the king told him to do. So during the the rest of the 1640s, this became quite an embedded concept that treason was a crime against. And they would use the word the estates, they would use the word kingdom, they would use the word um, state even, um, when they described treason. And and so they, they they extended the understanding of what treason was to be a crime against Scotland rather than just a crime against um, the royal family in a sense. In comparison to what happened in England, they tied themselves in knots because of Edward III's treason statute of the 1350s, I think it was. Um, so this treason statute is it was established in England in the 1350s under Edward III and and remained the basis for english treason law um for hundreds and hundreds of years and it's it's quite strictly compassed in that it 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 must be a crime against the monarch or his immediate family and in spite of the fact that it said that they somehow managed to convict strafford who was um Charles I's governor in Ireland. They managed to convict William Laud, who was um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, even though both of them were clearly acting on behalf of and on the instructions of the king. Um, and obviously, <laughs> finally, they managed to they managed to um, convict um, said king um, under somehow under the 1354 Treason Act in Scotland. It, they they just. You know they didn't pretend they just decided that treason was something else and they, but because they, they didn't have this tradition of, of being tied to individual spe- specific statutes in a way um, the Scottish legal tradition is much more based on principle. If you define something in statute, it tends not to be regarded as entirely restrictive in a Scottish context so a court can say well the statute says X principle upon which that statute is based seems applicable to this situation that we hadn't thought of before and therefore we regard it as reasonable to apply that statute here but in England they had to come up with all sorts of strange fictions and workarounds and it was easier to get to, to adapt law in Scotland in that sense.
1: That's a really interesting comparison because what's interesting is how Strafford relies on a very literal reading of the, of the treason law. He says, how can I be convicted of treason for all these tiny petty things that aren't really even crimes? Like one of them is demanding an oath of loyalty to the king. How on earth is that treasonous? <laughs> yeah. But his opponents, led by John Pym, argue... Much more in in almost a Scottish way, the way you describe that the the principle behind this. We take these thirty odd charges, and they show a man who is, at his core, treasonous towards the good governance of England because he is he is disrupting the relationship between mm. monarch and people, and therefore ergo treason. And Stratford goes, That's ridiculous. That is dangerous. How can you just say that? And he almost I would say almost gets away with it, and then they just vote him guilty and have his head cut off.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing about treason trials, they're never really due processes of law anyway. Yeah, Um, It's like that wonderful old adage, treason never prospers, what's the reason? If it prospers, none dare call it treason. And so if if you supplant the people in power and become the people in power, you get to decide who the traitors (laughs) are. And it's as simple as that.
1: And somewhat related to this redefinition of treason and the sort of removal of the person of the king from that definition, how did the covenanting regime actually go about governing? How did they replace the person of the king who is central to things like justice and things like passing of laws? How did they get around that when the king was at times actively at war with them or not fully willing to play along?
0: They relied largely in that particular context on the concept of the king's two bodies. That is the idea that Charles... Stuart is a human being and King Charles I is the monarch. And while they didn't express it explicitly in this way, they, they recognised that Charles I was king, but they simultaneously recognised that this same person was in opposition to a lot of what they wanted to do. But again, because of political realities, they knew they were in power. They didn't oppose monarchy in principle, so they recognised the right of Charles I to be king. They just didn't recognise his right to exercise power. Um, There's a fantastic moment in the mid-1640s when the Scottish um, Parliament elected uh, a commission, a delegation of people to go and speak to Charles I to see if he would be interested in, in, in acquiescing to the covenanting regime's desires. And the letter of commission to these commissioners to speak to Charles I ends beautifully with a statement that goes something along the lines of, and and if he resists any of this, if he says he doesn't want to play ball with you, (laughs) um, just remind him that we have been running this country for the last seven years without him. And we're quite happy to carry on doing that as long as he's stubborn enough not to let us agree to what, what we want to do. And so that's how they conceptualized it. They conceptualized it as well, he was the king, that's fine. They weren't challenging the fact that he was king. They were simply challenging the idea that he had the right to exercise sovereignty independently of the political nation.
1: Dr. Alan MacDonald, was there a Scottish Revolution?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, the key thing about what happened in 1639 to 41 is what happened in Parliament. Basically, there's some wonderful moments in the parliament of 1639 to 41, um, one of which is in the summer of 1640. the, The crown attempted to prevent parliament from meeting by not sending the king's commissioner to constitute the session. Parliament met, decided that that didn't matter, elected a president, which was without precedent, and just carried on. Effectively, what this parliament did in doing that and in doing a number of other things, asserting its authority, was to declare that the political nation as represented by parliament had a superior claim to be the sovereign of Scotland than even the king himself. So that if the king failed to exercise his duty as sovereign, that duty could be exercised by Parliament, and if Parliament and the King disagreed, Parliament was superior and I think that's that 's the the most striking thing about the Covenanting revolution is that it basically declared what we would recognize as constitutional monarchy okay it didn 't last it, it, it didn 't stick because of of other things that happened subsequently, but effectively in sixteen thirty nine to forty one what the Scottish Parliament was doing was very much like what the English Parliament did in the Glorious Revolution. Uh, We we laud and and look back on the Glorious Revolution as part of the the great Whig narrative of of British constitutional history, as, as a great moment, perhaps because it stuck in a sense. But we almost ignore the fact that these ideas hadn't just come out of nowhere, they'd been around for decades. And in the British context, at least, the first place they really make a a mark is in that um, revolutionary parliamentary session of 1639-41.
1: to What a fantastic answer. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been so interesting.
0: I've had fun. Thanks very much for inviting me.
1: And... uh... Just before we we leave off, what are you currently working on? Is there anything that the listeners might be interested in in reading or listening to?
0: A couple of main things, one of which is looking at agricultural innovation in early 17th century Scotland. I think we were doing an awful lot more than we previously realised in terms of improvement. You know, things that we thought weren't happening until the later 17th century, I think, were at least in some places, happening quite quite actively in the early 17th century. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that I'm working on a big Leverhulme-funded project on the Privy Council in the late 17th century. It's a bit like the Scottish Parliament project, um, digitising records. The Privy Council records were published up until about 1691. The last 18 years of the, of the Privy Council, from um, 1691 till 1708, Um, when the Privy Council was abolished, only exist in manuscript. And we've got a big grant from uh, Leverhulme. It's a collaborative project between Stirling and Dundee to digitise those records and complete uh, a project of many, many decades.
1: Well, that all sounds fascinating. And thank you for using a few of those spare minutes you've got out from preparing for teaching and lecturing and and research. Come and speak with me. This has been been brilliant. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks very much indeed. And all the best. Thank you.